Today's episode, we talk to the CEO of Harris Health System, Dr. Ismail Porsa. He shares about his incredible experience of being a new CEO of a hospital system at the beginning of a global pandemic. And he shares some incredibly vulnerable stories and insights that really highlight the impacts of culture in healthcare. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Love as a Business Strategy, a podcast that brings humanity to the workplace. As you know, we're here to talk about business, but we want to tackle topics that most business leaders shy away from. We believe that humanity and love should be at the center of every successful business. I'm your host, Jeff Ma. I'm a director at Softway, which is a business to employee solutions company that creates products and offers services that help build resilience and high performance company cultures. I'm joined today by President and CEO of Softway, Mohammed Anwar. Hey Mo, how's it going today? And good, good to see you guys. And our guest today, I will not waste any time. His name is Dr. Esmail Porsa. He has a very lengthy list of credentials that, um, I, that I wrote out, to be honest, for this podcast, and I had to condense by like, like it's like a fourth of what is written. So. Go on LinkedIn, check him out. He's got a lot of credentials, but he's had a unique experience in his storied career in the healthcare industry. He's been working in population health management and hospital system operations with a focus in quality and patient safety, program design and process improvement efforts. Dr. Porsa has served in a variety of leadership roles over the last 20 years, including medical director, VP of medical affairs, chief medical officer, and chief strategy officer. But currently, He's the Chief Executive Officer for Harris Health System. Welcome to the show, Dr. Porsa. How are you? Thank you so much, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. And good morning, Mohammed. Good morning. So I don't know if you know this, but we do, a, we do an icebreaker before we get started on anything. We are going to dive deep, deep, deep into your story and Harris Health soon, but we have to get through this first. But I'll give Mohammed the question first so you have time to think about it. The question today is, Mohammed. Yes. What is what is a nickname people have called you in your life, and what's the story behind it? Oh my gosh, are you serious? This is okay. So I've been called Curly Whirly in school. What? Yes, because I used to have curly hair. I mean, now I gel it to like keep it straight and short. But in school my hair was like all over the place and it was curly and there weren't a lot of other kids in my class that had curly hair. I think I was the only one. So my nickname was Curly Burly. I was strange, but yeah, that was my nickname that, through uh, most that, of my schooling. That's incredible. Thank you for yeah. sharing. That's, that's your best icebreaker answer ever. <laughs> Thank you. Dr. Porsa, what is a nickname that some people have called you in your life and what is the story behind it? Oh, Lord have mercy. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, I got to be honest, right? I can't, I can't just make things up. No, the, uh, I mean, yes, well, it's okay. It, 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 in, in Dallas, um, they, I was used to be called the Persian Stallion. Uh, and, and not, not, not for the reaction that Mohammed is showing right now. It really was not that. It was the, uh, uh, it, 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 for fun, uh, there was a, uh, uh, kind of a employee appreciation event and there was a Jeopardy game. 
and they were going around and asking people to kind of introduce themselves. But you know, the, the host started by introducing himself and giving himself a nickname, and that kind of went around. And when he came to me, I have no idea what happened, but you know, uh, me being Iranian, uh, I introduced myself as you know, Dr. Asmar Porsa, aka the Persian Stallion, and that kind of that stuck. <laughs> you got to be careful. It'll yes, sir. Yes, sir. I love it. And actually, I, I used to have a, I used to have an iron stallion uh, statue behind me. I removed it because I had to explain to everybody what that meant. Oh wow! <laughs> I love it. Thank you for sharing that. That's sure. awesome. But what we're here to talk about, obviously, it was called Love as a Business Strategy. Before we dive in, though. I want the audience to understand a little bit more about Harris Health, if you don't mind. And you're the, you're the CEO of Harris Health. Can you tell us a little bit about Harris Health and, and what's unique about it? Maybe? Sure. So Harris Health System is the safety net hospital system for, the, for Harris County and the city of Houston. Uh, we are the fourth largest safety net hospital system in the country, actually, uh, and largest in Texas. And what makes us different than other health systems is our safety net designation. Uh, what that means is that, you know, if you imagine the, uh, the you know, if you've ever been to the circus, you see people, you know, walking on tight ropes. Underneath them, usually, um, there is a safety net so that if they fall, uh, the idea is that the safety net catches them and prevents them from getting harmed. The safety net hospital system is basically that. We are here to catch people who fall through the cracks as far as their access to healthcare. So we provide care to everyone, regardless of their ability to pay for it, regardless of their insurance status. Um, and and that's, that's our job and that's our role. Uh, we, um, our funding is, is a third and a third and a third, basically. You know, a third comes from the federal government, the, fir the third uh, from taxes, uh, local tax support, property tax support, and the third is through collection from, from, from patients who are able to pay. And I, I can tell you about the system. You know, we have two hospitals, Bentop, which is our level one trauma center, and LBJ Hospital, which is a level three trauma center. Uh, interesting, you know, LBJ is half the size of Bentop. Uh, but their emergency room is actually as busy, if not busier, than Bentop Hospital. And then in the community, we have 18 uh, clinics scattered across the Harris County where we provide primary and specialty care services. That's Harris Health System in a nutshell. Interesting. So, Dr. Persa, can you share some of the challenges or, that you face as a safety net hospital that maybe traditional hospitals don't face? Yeah, I think traditionally speaking, the, the biggest challenge is always the uncertainty about our funding status. Uh, if you can imagine, uh, you know, moving from a, a, a Republican uh, government to a Democratic government back to a Republican government and what happens with regards to um, how provision of care is viewed in terms of a, a human right versus a privilege. Uh, it, it, it really, our funding is always uh, uh, in question, you know, from year to year. I don't know if you guys know about the waiver program or the event 15 waiver district program. Uh, it, it really 
came to exist for, um, for the states that did not expand Medicaid almost 12 years ago at the beginning of the uh, Affordable Care Act. So instead of Texas, is one of those states uh, that did not expand Medicaid in order to encourage the states, give them time to think and uh, finally expand Medicaid. 1115 waiver was created where you know, we are able to draw our federal money to pay for our uh, uncompensated care. Um, and it, it's, it's a lot of money. And uh, this year, uh, that funding is supposed to end. And there's right. still a question mark exactly how that's going to be replaced. Uh, so that's unique to safety net hospitals uh, because we depend on that type of funding. Got it. Mm. Interesting. And in terms of your staff, um, uh -huh. how, how are you staffed? Because it's a different type of hospital system. Um, do you have employment or are you partnered with university system? Like how, how are you staffing your uh, hospital system? Yeah, and I guess that's kind of also different as an academic medical center. So all our provider staff, that's our physicians, nurse practitioners, and physician assistants, they're actually contracted through either Baylor College of Medicine or UT McGovern Medical School. Now, the rest of the staff, nurses, techs, everybody else, uh, they are employees of Harris Health System. And right now, we have close to 10,000 employees and a little more than 2,000 contracted uh, providers through either UT or Baylor College of Medicine. Got it. So does that mean it's also um, like used for teaching um, in addition to providing the services? It is. So it's part of actually part of our mission uh, is to become a premier academic medical center. Uh, and so, you know, being a safety net hospital, part of our mission is providing care to folks, especially those who need us the most, those who don't have access to healthcare. But a very large part of our mission is also our um, training, uh, acting as a, as a training center. More than 50% of all physicians who practice across the city of Houston trained at Harris Health System. Wow. Oh, wow. Okay, that's interesting. So with respect to other hospital systems in Houston or Harris County, how is your relationship with them? Do you guys have um, like any kind of connection to the other hospital systems in the area? Do you guys collaborate or how, how does that work? Yeah, so that, you know, if you had asked the previous CEO probably a couple of years ago, you would have gotten a different answer. Uh, okay. So we, Harris Health System, you know, Baylor College, the Ben Top Hospital is actually smack in the middle of the Texas Medical Center. So we are considered part of the Texas Medical Center hospital system, which if you don't know, is the largest conglomerate of hospitals in the world. And nothing even comes close to it. Uh, but to answer your question, we do have a relationship. Uh, it's really, you know, I've had this conversation in different settings. We, we certainly do not compete uh, for volume. Could be our patient clientele are different than the normal patient clientele at, you know, Memorial Hermann or Methodist or St. Luke's. So it's really not a competition. There is collaboration. The collaboration was actually strengthened, if you can imagine, for obvious reasons during the COVID-19. Uh, and I think it really, really forced 
the issue uh, of collaboration where we had to rely on each other, uh, not just in terms of uh, sharing information, knowing exactly what was going on at each hospital, and we were completely transparent with regard to that, but also things uh, that you don't normally think hospitals would collaborate on are uh, PPEs, mm. our gloves and gowns and hats and shoe covers. We were actually good at a point where we came very close. We collected, we came very close to running out of PPEs. So we were sharing, you know, we would have extra gloves and maybe St. Luke's had, had extra gowns. So we would swap, or maybe, you know, we had N95 masks and they had surgical masks and we would swap. Uh, so yeah. we do definitely collaborate. The collaboration had gotten a lot better as a direct result of COVID-19. Uh, you know, I, I believe, Dr. Porza, you joined Harris Health in January of 2020. Is that correct? March 2nd. Oh, March of 2020. But either, but basically, right, like it's like the worst, like first day of work ever or something, I assume. Um, what I just want to talk a little bit, I mean, yes, about Harris Health and COVID, but even you yourself, like, tell me about that experience of jumping into this job at that time. I mean, I can't even imagine. Yeah, well, nobody could imagine that, right? I mean, nobody, <laughs> nobody would have forecasted this. So yeah, so March 2nd, I started on the job on a Monday. And I think that Friday is when, you know, I attended my first meeting with the county officials talking about this new thing that is called the novel coronavirus. And a week later, we had the first case here in Houston. The week after that, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, what was that event in Houston? The rodeo uh, was shut down. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. it, it was bang, bang, bang. And before I knew it, I was in the thick of a global pandemic. Uh, so, you know, I've had this conversation actually several times and you know, people ask me, oh my God, you know, poor you. You start as a new CEO, the first time as a CEO, and a large hospital system in a large county, and COVID-19 hits. I know it's true. There were, there were, there were times where things got hairy, uh, you know, where we were actually running out of uh, uh, capacity at the hospitals. Uh, I remember having this conversation with one of my board members, uh, and, you know, she was asking me, so, Dr. Porcel, what's the plan? I said, well... Phase one plan is this. So, okay, so then what? So, well, phase two, we're going to do X, Y, and Z. Okay, okay, great. What is phase three? I said, well, phase three, we're going to convert our, our pack use to ICUs. So, okay, what is phase four? So, phase four, you know, we transform our ORs into ICU rooms. So, okay, and then if that happens, we get to that point, then what? I said, then we pray. There is nothing else. There is no phase five. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's like, you know, this is it. This is, there is nothing else we can do. And luckily we never got to that point. Uh, but, you know, I say that, but also I have to qualify uh, the experience. You know, COVID-19 has been terrible, terrible, terrible uh, in terms of lost lives and uh, everything else that happened because of it. But it did a couple of things also. One was that it actually forced all of us to the previous conversation to really become collaborative in what we did. The other thing was that everybody, just all of a sudden, it's just like the light bulb went on and everybody became innovative. Uh, I remember, you know, when I arrived here on the scene, March 2nd, you know, I'm very, very interested in virtual care. And I uh, asked uh, our community health leaders, 
you know, what is our virtual care platform? So, well, Dr. Porcel, for the last month, uh, we're just beginning this transition. And the last month, we had two virtual care visits, and we are very, very happy about it. Well, you know, since then, since March 2nd of last year to this year, we now have had almost close to a million uh, virtual visits. But it's not just us, right? So everybody had to really, really expedite uh, their learnings and their, their abilities. But really, really important to me personally as a CEO uh, was that it forced me to develop relationships that otherwise would have taken me a very long time uh, to develop. My relationship with the county commissioners, my relationship with the county health department, with the county judge, with the rest of the CEOs. Uh, I, I can't even imagine how long it would have taken me under quote unquote normal situations to develop those relationships ever, uh, to develop those trusting relationships out of necessity. Um, so yeah, there were a lot of bad with COVID, but there were some, some positives that happened just out of necessity. Sure. This is not a question, so you have the stage. I just want to add context for the, for the listeners who are not familiar with the Texas or Houston area or, or these things. That just when You hear Harris County, I just want to be clear. It's the largest county in Texas, I think the third largest in the nation. So we're Correct. talking like four, four and a half million people plus um, in one county. So I, I think sometimes people don't get that context of what we're dealing with here in the Harris Health System. So I just want to add that. Go ahead, Mo. I was just going to say, like, I think the, the whole aspect you brought up about innovation and building relationships and, you know, uh, having that collaboration um, you know, we refer to that as <clears throat> vulnerability-based trust because you just talked about trust. And usually that comes into existence when you have high risks, uh, emotional exposure, and uncertainty. And I feel like COVID-19 presented all of that in the situation and in our lives. And I think, like to your, to your statement earlier, it accelerated everything that could have taken you probably months or even years to build such relationships and getting that collaboration level going. In fact, some of the highest performing teams operate, you know, at the highest levels under situations of high risk, emotional exposure and uncertainty. And, and I think we saw the whole globe do that all at the same time, which is very uncommon and something that was really real for us last year. So um, that makes complete sense how you witnessed it in, in your own surroundings and, and the hospital systems. That's really crazy. So Dr. Porcel, it's, you know, obviously you landed in your new position as a CEO right in the middle of COVID-19. But for you personally, what were some of the challenges that you faced as a leader, as a CEO of a 10,000 employee organization? Sure. Um... You know, I, I have uh, spent all my professional life uh, working in, uh, in, in safety net hospital systems, you know, either uh, originally here in Harris South, then, you know, Parkland in Dallas, and then back to Harris South. So it, it was really not um, a struggle understanding the mission that was very clear. And, you know, yes, I've had, you know, different leadership roles, but, but never as a CEO. 
uh, and definitely not a CEO of a, such a large uh, hospital system. So of course, you know, you, you have you have some doubts, you have some uh, uh, questioning uh, in, in the back of your mind, you know, are you ready for this? Uh, and, you know, you, you do your best, you read about uh, how to, you know, spend your first 90 days and this and that. And I did all those things. And of course, you know, you start and then, you know, COVID-19 hits and you know, everything goes out the door. Uh, the, the, the main challenge is just, um, if I could name a few of them, one, being, being in charge, being the, the final voice, being the, the ultimate decision maker. Um, I, I don't think, I don't think you can prepare yourself uh, for that uh, until it actually happens. Uh, and it, that was, uh, that was two things. It was very, very scary. Uh, but also very gratifying um, to be able to 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 have an impact and, and feel uh, empowered uh, to have to have that, that impact and the lives of not just the people that you serve, uh, but to your point, you know, the nine thousand plus employees. Uh, that that was one. Um, Really, really interesting. And I think that's part of being the first time CEO is that I didn't quite appreciate um, that when, when I said something, I, I, it didn't occur to me that everybody around me heard it as the CEO saying something. Uh, and it literally took me a few months uh, to get used to that. So when I, would, when I would say something, I would always have to kind of check with myself. Uh, in my head, okay, be, be careful what you're saying because people are going to react to it. Uh, even though you may just be expressing an opinion, you may be thinking out loud, be careful, qualify it as thinking out loud because otherwise people actually react and then follow through. Uh, so it, it took me a couple of times and a couple of missteps and misfires uh, you know, but I would say something and all of a sudden the, the following day, I will have extensive report on my. It's not my intention, but it took me a while. It took me a while to understand that. Uh, I think the biggest challenge, Mohammed, um, and, and this is something that's really interesting that stays with me even today uh, because I felt so terrible about it. Um, you know, it was at the peak of COVID-19 and I remember it was like, it was bad news after bad news after bad news. You know, the hospital was getting inundated. Uh, we were running out of supplies and just like, it, it, it was really, and you know, I, I, one of the things that we guess as a CEO, it becomes 24 seven, right? You know, you're just like, you can't disconnect, especially uh, at, at the heat of a pandemic. I remember, uh, it was, I think, the middle of the week. And, you know, we had, you know, every morning we were meeting as a CEOs at seven o'clock, including Saturdays and Sundays, all Texas Medical Center CEOs were getting on the call to, to check in. And then at 10 o'clock in the morning, every day, including Saturdays and Sundays, we, Harris Health System, would have our own um, uh, uh, incident command center meetings. You remember, we were just, everybody's checking in and finding out what's going on in the hospital, what's going on in the clinics. 
And I remember that I, I was, that one day I was overwhelmed uh, with, with everything coming at me and I did not react well. Um, I, I wasn't, I wasn't aggressive, but I was, uh, I was very flat and I was very, uh, um, it, you know, instead of, you know, I see my, I see my role, um, one of my roles, uh, as a cheerleader, uh, as the, the, um, as the motivator and that day I, I completely failed uh, as a CEO. Uh, I, I was flat. I was dejected. I was defeated. Uh, it was just a terrible meeting. And you know, spend the rest of the day just really feeling bad about it. And you know, until the following day when I, you know, when we had the incident command center, and I had to apologize to everyone on the call. So guys, I know I failed you yesterday. And I promise I will never do that again. I don't care what is going on. Uh, I know that I have a great team and I do have a great team. And regardless of what is happening, uh, I know we can, we can find solutions and you know, we can move forward. So, so that was, you know, talking about the big challenge, that was a huge challenge. Realizing that, uh, and I don't know, I, I, I've not read a textbook about what the CEO is supposed to be like, but I can tell you in my mind, uh, as the CEO, I, I cannot let my team down uh, by uh, by not being the uh, the additional uh, shot of energy that, that they needed at that time. Uh, and I, yeah, so that, that was that was a huge lesson. So, you know, it's really interesting because I've always proud myself in uh, the fact that it, it's really difficult to catch me without a smile on my face. Uh, but that day, uh, I really don't know what was going on, but it, it, yeah, that was not me. And, uh, it, it was, and I still remember that feeling. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that, uh, Dr. Forrest. Like, I think that takes a lot of courage for anybody in, in a position like yours to be able to share that, uh, the way you just did, but I'm, but I'm witnessing just by you sharing that, 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 that ability to take ownership, ability to realize and have that self-awareness that you did in almost real time, it feels like is actually one of the, you know, needed traits of a leader. And the fact that I, I, I feel like you were able to even go on the call the next day and apologize to your team is not common. <laughs> And most of the times leaders may not even recognize that they've done that, right? Because they may not even have realization of how they came across. So I'm looking at that as your superpower, to be honest, the ability <laughs> to recognize that you may have, um, you know, let down your team, you may have made a mistake, but also your ability to go and confess and apologize. I think that's quite inspiring and uh, motivating just for me to hear, to be honest. Uh, Jeff, I don't know what your thoughts are, but that's not commonly seen. <laughs> yeah. And um, I think, I think um, there's a blind spot for leaders in, the, in this, in this, I think the higher up we go, you mentioned earlier, like 
how it took you time to even realize that everything you're you say and do is being watched and and kind of meticulously picked apart and that's magnified right um the as the higher up you go the less you're allowed to have a, a human moment or a bad day because there's a reaction every time and it's really unfair right honestly but <clears throat> i think it's really powerful to I don't think the goal is to uh, find a way to never have a bad day. I think the goal is to find and build an environment that allows you to have a bad day and still come out of it stronger and better for it. So I think you demonstrated that there. I think that's a great story. I really liked it. So I appreciate that. Yeah, it taught totally me a lot. Agree. Yeah. No, uh, amazing. And I think, I think, you know, I, I hold a position, uh, you know, similar to yours, except I don't manage 10,000 people, but, you know, I strive to always be my best, but the days that, you know, I cannot be positive and optimistic and that cheerleader, I've had moments where I will have, you know, shown my face. I'm very, I wear my emotions on my sleeve and people automatically recognize that, okay, there's something wrong and he's not motivated or something's really behind the scenes, something's going on. And the more I've recognized and openly shared that, hey, I'm sorry guys, today I'm not having a great day and apologies if, you know, I'm able to share my emotional state so that they don't go into the meeting, you know, assuming things. I've noticed that my team actually becomes much more supportive of me. They are there to be, uh, be my cheerleader because at the end of the day, I think they're able to see me as human and not uh, invincible, like this flawless leader, but someone who is flawed, who does have ups and downs. Who, So I, I've noticed that it's actually opened up these doors of relationships with my team around me where I actually feel supported and not lonely at the top, you know? And so I think you may have... It, you know, unintentionally opened up those doors of care and support by your team because you showed to them that you're human and you had a bad day and then coming out and apologizing probably changed their whole perspective of you as a CEO. And, you know, I, it took me a while to recognize that fact um, that at times it's okay to be human. It's okay to, you know, have a moment. And in fact, over here, they have a name for it. They call it the moment with my name <laughs> it's like Mo had a moment <laughs> and yep. uh, it's actually humanized uh, me and given me this incredible support system that I never thought a CEO or the leader at the top could have because I always used to have this philosophy or belief that it's lonely at the top the higher you go up the lonelier it gets but I think it's a myth and there are opportunities for leaders to have a team that corrals around you to help support you in times of you being human and uh, I think it's uh, it's really important that leaders recognize that but uh, obviously just hearing your story um, you know makes me confident that it's probably already happened and happening at, at Harris Health for you as well. I hope so. Well, I hope so. I want I, I think we've broached the topic of culture now so I actually I'm curious Dr. Porsa like how would you describe the culture at Harris Health? right now uh it, okay not not ideal uh and I, I, i'm gonna qualify that but what i mean by that is that this, this is not where 
I'd like for us to be, when uh, I believe, you know, we have uh, completed our journey. Um, that, that, that there are things that are lacking. Uh, and, and, and it's really interesting, you know, because, you know, asking me about the culture of Harris Health System, I'm, I'm telling you through the lens of Esmile Porsa, uh, what, what I see not right or, 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 or ideal right now. What is ideal is the spirit of the uh, uh, being uh, truly mission-driven. You're there. It's perfect. It, it really is it's great. Um, the ability to um, forge trust, the ability to um, make decisions. Uh, you know, decisions are made every day, all day, obviously, uh, because otherwise we would not be able to function. But, but to be able to make decisions without the, uh, not fear, but, but concern, uh, concern about uh, uh, how it might be evaluated. Uh, we are not there. We are not there yet. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, it, this is something actually that brought with me because I, I'm sorry, I'm going to tell you a story. Uh, so many, many years ago, uh, in my role as the chief strategy officer, uh, something caught my attention. You know, uh, you know we, had a, we had an employee evaluation, uh, satisfaction survey one year, and there were three items uh, that were directly related to the score for uh, employee satisfaction that, that had scored very low. It was respect, recognition, and trust. Very interesting. The following year, the same three items. The following year, the same three items. And just like, you know, maybe we were always struggling as a system trying to, you know, figure out, you know, what are we going to do? What are we going to address? So guys, it's, it's, it's screaming at us that, that we, our employees are not happy with the respect that they're receiving. They're not happy with the way they're recognizing them. And they don't trust the top leadership. That's what they need to fix. So it's actually now become part of our value statement, the respect, recognition, and trust at Harris Health System. I really believe that it is the, that, that really the foundational values that we must address. And, you know, I, I speak every couple of weeks at our new employee orientation. I feel it's, it's important enough for them to hear from the CEO. Uh, about this three pillars of respect, recognition, and trust. And I tell them, you know, respecting, yes, our patients as, as, as active participants in the care that we did, uh, we're providing them, but also respecting each other, respecting those who serve us, respecting those that we serve, recognition. You know, we are in a journey to a high reliability organization. Part of that is preoccupation with failure, identifying errors, using rest teaching moments, and all of that, great really, really important to balance it is recognition. There's a lot of excellence that happens around us and we need to spend the time and resources and energy to recognize that and trust. Without it, nothing else really matters. It, it is, it's not, if not impossible, it becomes really challenging to do anything if there's not a trusting relationship, again, at all levels among ourselves, those we serve, those who serve us, but also tell our employees to trust your training. Uh, 
I, I, I find those three things, respect, recognition, and trust, uh, as fundamental. And, you know, ask me about the culture at Harris Health System. I don't think we are there yet uh, with regard to the respect, recognition, and trust. And that's what we're working on. What do you think yeah. is uh, the obstacle in the way of building up those three values, according to you? It's, I, I think it's human nature, it's, uh, it's um, self-doubt more than anything else. Uh, you know, I struggled with it. Uh, you know, it wasn't easy for me. You know, I, I told you a story about, you know, coming back the next day, I apologized. It, it was not, it was not easy. It was not, uh, you know, I lost sleep over it. Uh, and, you know, I, I know that, uh, you know, when you're talking about 10,000 people, you know, they all bring a little something uh, to the mix, uh, a lot of, lot of positive, but, you know, we all have our uh, uh, experiences and, you know, and baggages that, you know, we carry with, our, with ourselves uh, that, that prevents us uh, until, prevents us to achieve um, those ideals until we actually become intentional about them, right? You know, you, you, you become intentional, you identify that, yes, I'm struggling with respect because of X, Y, and Z. And, you know, we should do better with recognition because of this and that. And, you know, why is it that there's a, a trust issue with the mid-level managers, directors, and vice presidents and above? And, and how do we go about addressing them? Um, you know, it's really interesting. This is actually kind of a, a eye-opening for me as well. Uh, I'm, I'm having a, a bit of a, a, a light bulb moment. You know, on, on Sundays, I go to the hospitals and I visit uh, folks at the hospital. And, you know, people always ask me, you know, why, why do you do that? You know, it, it, you, know you, can, you can become uh, uh, facetious about it and say, you know, yeah, you know, you know, you're, you're trying to uh, uh, improve, you know, patients, you know, employee satisfaction or, 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 or whatever. You know, and I've always felt that, you know, I go because it, it, it actually energizes me. It really, really does. Uh, you know, when, when I go in, I'm flat. When I come out at the end of the day, I am full of energy and ready for another week. Uh, but that, that, as I'm having this conversation, it occurred to me that I, it's really creating a relationship of trust. Yesterday, I was at the hospital, and you know, this actually happened. I witnessed uh, went into one of the units, and there was like there was a lot of commotion, and you know, there was security officers, and there were doctors and nurses, and uh, we we had a patient who was suffering from acute. Uh, psychosis and you know she was just irate you know she was just using every slur every curse every I mean, she was just like all over the place and it was people were trying to to manage her medicate her counsel her I didn't do anything I, I really didn't I was just standing there I was just watching it uh, happen and you know really really impressed with the level of uh, uh, competence and professionalism but before I left, one of the nurses, she didn't even say anything. She kind of like just made a gesture, just like, like, like she saw me. You can't put a price on that. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't say that to self-promote. I, I say that, that you know, 
what does it take to 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 create a trusting relationship you know whatever it takes you know you become visible uh you become vulnerable uh like you said uh so that's really interesting it, it just it just occurred to me that and i'm actually addressing one of the pillars <laughs> awesome no i uh i totally appreciate that and uh jeff i don't know i i I follow Harris Health's social media uh, handle, and they post pictures of you visiting even through last year during the thick and thin of COVID nineteen. You were at the front lines, uh, supporting your staff, being there with them, um, and they used to put up pictures of you with the staff, and you could see how happy the staff was just to have you in the front lines with them, and you were giving them all of the the respect, the recognition, and even. Some of the, I've noticed like Houston Chronicle and the ads and uh, some of the promotions that you're putting up, you've put up in, in the press all through 2020. It wasn't a promotion of Harris Health. It was a promotion of the people of Harris Health. And you recognize them and you recognize them for their sacrifices and hero, heroism and everything. And it's very uncommon. Like there were full page ads not on Harris Health, but the people of Harris Health um, for many, uh, many times over the course of last year. And, you know, it's a very different coverage of press versus before 2020 for Harris Health. So it was really incredible to see, you know, it wasn't a self-promotion. Uh, it wasn't like promoting your services, promoting, and it was really genuinely promoting the people of Harris Health, and that was very uh, inspiring for me to witness because I follow, I've been following it, and I follow your social media handles with Harris Health, and I think with discipline, you've shown up to the hospitals at the front lines every weekend just to go show your support, and that's it, and that's really unheard of, very uncommon, um, so kudos to you for being able to do that and being there with the front line staff and and showing your support and just just your presence probably uplifts them just as much as you're having a realization that it uplifts you so really amazing uh thank you for sharing that sure um i wanted to ask how do you feel you know you mentioned high reliability and patient safety and outcomes is one of the big drivers of any hospital system how do you attribute that to the culture of a hospital system and an organization. What are your thoughts on that? So, you know, when you talk about high reliability organization in, in the health system, you know, bottom line, you're trying to arrive at a zero patient harm situation. Um, you know, you, you can be, and I have been part of, uh, where you know you become very draconian right zero patient harm means that every time there's patient harm somebody's head gets chopped and that actually happens there are systems that's that's how they try to achieve higher liability organization uh so that's one approach and the other approach is you know when we're talking about respect recognition and trust you know we also talk about the just and accountable culture realizing uh, as a system that, uh, and, and I don't know, Mohammed or, or Jeff, how much you guys are familiar with the uh, the, the the construct of error, uh, especially when it's in healthcare system and patients, is that uh, 
and I'm going to ask you all to kind of use your uh, uh, your imagination. You know, the, the way you know, I draw it is like you know a, a, a rectangle or a, a pizza slice, you know, laying on its side. Uh, there's always a point at which the error reaches the patient, and usually at that point, there's a person present, a tech, a nurse, a doctor. But what the systems usually miss is the rest of the pizza, the rest of the triangle, everything that lined up to get to that point where they actually, where the error reached the patient. Um, so it, how, how, does, how does that interrelate with, with the cultures that as a system that really believes in, in kind of a, a just and accountable culture is that you, you, you embrace that, you realize that majority of the time far majority of the time yes there was a person at the point of the error that could have potentially uh prevented it or recognized it but that person usually is not at fault is the system that created the opportunity for that error to reach the patient it's the system that put that person at risk of being at the point where the error occurred uh, so yes, it, it, it requires a culture change to really, really embrace that uh, understanding um, to get, and I really believe that's the only way you're going to get to a higher reliability organization. Now, don't take me wrong, you know, you can do it being draconian and chop heads off every time there's an error. That's not sustainable. You, you can get there for a year, you can get there for a year and a half. That will not sustain itself. Uh, you're pretty soon you're going to run out of heads to chop. Uh, right. So it, it's going to require a, 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 a new culture and a new way of doing things and looking at things to get there and sustain it. Yeah. So talking about near misses, I think is where uh, maybe the correlation is. So if we're going to go with that, the draconian culture, I, I would imagine that people would be afraid to speak up when they see errors or issues that could be avoidable because of that fear, correct? That's exactly what happens, right? I mean, so there's the code and code red rules uh, in hospitals. We have two of them. We have a cell system, we have two of them. And it has to do you know, with patient identification, making sure that we are treating the right patient. And then the other one's the timeouts uh, before procedures and surgeries. We, have identified those two things that no matter what happens, no matter what else is going on, no matter how bad of a day you're having, no matter how understaffed you are, how overcrowded you are, those two things we will meet 100% of the time, every time with every patient. Uh, now there are hospitals that have a book full of red rules. And the idea is that every time you, you break a red rule, chances are you're going to get terminated. And again, I have been part of systems where that happens. Nurses of 10, 15 years of experience commit an error and they're escorted out of the building. Mm -hmm. uh, to, you're exactly right. Well, guess what happens to the rest of the nurses? First of all, they're, they're really operating with, under a lot of stress. And secondly, if they commit that same error, do you really think they're gonna report it? <laughs> Oh, chances are they're not going to 
Uh, so, you know, so you, you don't want that. Yeah, you, you want to create a culture where, you know, there's understanding and there's trust and uh, there's ability to, to self-report. Uh, and I say that also, also, you know, I told you about our two right rules, but, you know, there, there are things that are really, really important enough uh, where, you know, it, it seems minor. Uh, so what if, you know, I, I thought Jeff was Muhammad and Muhammad was Jeff. It doesn't seem like, yeah, but if, if you guys are, one of y'all is going in there to get an eye surgery and you want to stick your appendix out, it's very <laughs> important. <laughs> yeah. Totally. No, that, that, that makes sense. And so tying back to the trust conversation and how trust could play a role in patient safety and outcomes, um, do you feel that if the employees do not trust their leadership to give them a fair chance or a fair assessment of you know, what mistake happened or a just assessment, that that could be maybe what is coming being, you know, the trust between the leadership or the management and the, the employees? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's part of it. Uh, it you know, it, 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 and it's not, it's not just that it's, it's not just the uh, related to errors and uh, patient harm and high reliability. I, I think it's even more fundamental than that. Uh, trusting in fairness, trusting in, um, hearing uh, the employees, uh, trusting in um, um, being open uh, to to sharing, to understanding, to listening. Uh, it, it, it's, it's really it's more fundamental. Yes, absolutely, with regard to to harm and self report and all of that. But I think it's so much more fundamental than that. Uh, and it's, it's, it's really the fundamental things that once you address the bigger things, the self-reporting, it, it, becomes, it becomes automatic almost. It becomes a, a, a logical continuation of that relationship. Uh, so, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we, we internally were having some situation. I'll share a quick story. So we had these Monday morning stand-ups where we brought leaders and directors together, project managers to report problems to the project so we could solve them, blocks or issues. And more and more every Monday that I showed up to the meetings and I was present in the meetings as CEO um, and my behaviors were obviously probably not the best uh, at the time. And every meeting our project managers and leaders were like, no problems, no issues. No, 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 no problems with our projects at all. It's on time. Everything's on track. We're doing good. Only to find out a few weeks later, I'll get a call from a customer saying, hey, our project missed our deadline. It's over budget. Like we're not hitting our goals. It's got lots of bugs. It's got lots of software issues. And every Monday I went into those meetings and I'm like, why are, why is my team not being honest with me? Why is my team not sharing these issues and problems. And I came across this study by Amy Edmondson around psychological safety, where she had um, done research of organizations that had more near misses reported, had a better patient quality score versus organizations that reported less near misses had higher patient safety incidences. And believe it or not, like we, 
learned from that study that our team was not psychologically safe to report issues with me on the call because I would become lit, lit, like, like a litigator. I'd start or, uh, you know, I, uh, what is it? You know, the police go and interrogate. Like I started right. like, so what did you do? How did you handle it? What did you do? Why did you let this happen? Why didn't you turn in the report? And ultimately I created this environment of fear where everybody only showed up to the meeting to let me hear what I wanted to hear, not what I needed to hear. And it impacted the safety of our projects, safety of our delivery, and our quality of our project where we are over budget, behind schedule, patient, uh, or sorry, our customer satisfaction was low. It was all because we never created an opportunity for them to be honest and feel comfortable to give up the information we need to hear. And over there, I'm like, I'm like, I'm the servant leader coming to help you remove your blocks and issues, but inherently I created an environment of fear uh, unintentionally. And I, I had to learn from the hospital cultures and psychological safety uh, and borrow that in our technology business to try and create this environment where people felt comfortable to share. So that was my exposure to psychological safety and patient safety and how we could borrow it in our industry. So. I, I completely hear you when you're saying, um, you know, how do you create an environment where people can report those near misses and not have fear of repercussion and, and so forth. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And, you know, I, this, this is really uh, mind boggling to me because, you know, you, you've seen me. I mean, it's like, I, I can't stop smiling. And it's really interesting when I get frustrated I smile more uh, and, and for people who don't know me that they find that sometime, uh, uh, I don't know, I, 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 they find it difficult to understand it as if I actually was in a meeting one time, I was going to tell you something else, but I'm going to tell you this quick story before I get there. Uh, this is that I was actually reporting to a new leader. This is many years ago. Uh, we, we had, I have been there for maybe just a couple of months and it was a big meeting and, uh, we were talking about something and, you know, it's just like, I, it was something that I really thought within five minutes we could solve. And it was like an hour and 20 minutes into it. We we're talking about the same thing. And, you know, it was getting to a point I was really, really getting frustrated with, with every, all the discussions that were happening. They were all leaders at my level having this conversation. And you know, you know, people get frustrated and you can get angry or flustered or whatever. I smile, so I started smiling. The, my leader actually got very upset, and uh, she she stood up. Uh, she you know she hit the table and she said, "Obviously, some of you think this is a joke," and she left the room. Um, so I had to go and explain. I actually followed her and said, "You know, this is who I am. So you don't know me right now, but I promise you, this is who I am, and you will." see that you know truly this is just a, a this is just how i react and you know she, she got that but what i was going to tell you Mohammed, to your story is that as much as i like to think that uh because of the fact that i smile because of the fact that i not only try to show it but actually talk about openness and trust and servant leadership and this and that I, i'm still being told that people find me intimidating and I honestly, I, 
I, I struggle with that. I don't want to be intimidating. Uh, that's the last thing I want to be. Uh, so, so something about my actions or the way I, 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 I relay information or, or the way people are receiving, just not everybody, but uh, enough people for me to, to try to analyze, self-analyze and identify you know, how can I still uh, change uh, because I'm not there. Uh, obviously, I'm not there if, if people are reacting uh, that way. You know, I, <clears throat> having, work, having worked with Muhammad for almost a decade now, I'll, I'll tell you the turning point for me when Muhammad went from intimidating to, let's say, less intimidating. I'm just joking. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> um, it's because... I, I work closely, very closely with Muhammad over the 10 years, even back in the, the days when he was uh, much more almost in, you know, abrasive almost all the time. Sorry, Muhammad. It's okay. Uh, but, but there's a period of time when he was really trying to change. Uh, for a long period of time, he was really, really working hard. You could tell everything he was doing was like this brute force kind of like, I'm going to be positive. I'm going to smile. I'm going to be as nice as I possibly can. And it was like, it was this really this this facade. Like if you if you knew him well, he's just gritting his teeth and being as sweet as possible. Even when he's really upset, he's just like, okay, well, that's good news here. I get like he's just finding every little silver lining and trying to just force it out. And um, I just remember, you know, there was a point when um, Muhammad, you kind of came to peace with with kind of what you really wanted to be. We found more of a mission behind what we we're trying to do. And we kind of learned more about ourselves through writing the book and all this stuff, you know, as we were working on this stuff, um, you know, you, you turn a corner where I think you, we talked about this a little bit earlier, where it was less about trying to cover up how you, how you felt or anybody felt. We, this is when we would start having meetings and you just be like, you know, I just want to share something openly and, I know this might come off, you know, X, Y, Z, but I have to just say it and I'll put it out there. And it's stuff that would make the whole room really awkward for like, you know, a good 30 seconds. Like nobody knew what to say. It's just quiet. Everyone's just on the call, just waiting to see who would say something next. But then you look at the end of those meetings and we would all leave kind of like we just ripped the bandaid off, you know, address an elephant in the room. And then, you know, meet. it wasn't one meeting. It was like that. And then the next one, the next one, and you get used to Muhammad kind of being this person who is not going to hold back who he is. He's not going to, um, I keep switching from talking about Muhammad in third person to first person. Sorry, Muhammad, I know you're right here. Um, but, but I just wanted to share that because I, I have this perspective. Always, I'm the only non, I'm the, I'm the minority here. I'm the non CEO on this, on this, on this conversation. Um, but as someone who, as someone who looks up to Muhammad, but also I know today, like, I'm not intimidated by Muhammad. I, I, it's, it's what's left is respect and, and like a true following. But, you know, before that, there was always an element of fear still driving it because you're kind of like, you know that you don't want to be the one to tip Muhammad over into the, into the other space, into a bad place. And today, you know, I'll, I know I'll tip Muhammad into a bad space and we'll just talk about Muhammad. Last week, we had a call where we had a meeting. He and I disagreed on something at about 3 p.m. We got off, both of us pretty upset. And he texted me at 6 p.m. We, we, we talked at 6, 6.30 that day. And we we're like, look, man, here's, here's what I was feeling. He's like, here's what I was feeling. I was like, cool, are we cool? Like, we solved it. And then that would ne never have happened 
you know, a long time ago and stuff. So that's just how I feel about that topic, just from a perspective um, of, you know, non-CEO in this. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's hey, a really I, good perspective. Actually, you, you, you know what, I'm actually, you gave me an idea what I'm going to yeah. actually do in my next meeting. So thank you for that. Awesome. <laughs> Let me know how that <laughs> turns out. Yeah. I, I think the last thing to say, I think what changed was when I went to those meetings and started to share my failures or my near misses, and I gave, that's when I felt like I gave permission for everyone else to be comfortable to say, you know what, if Muhammad can mess up, so can I. But as long as it's not intentional, as long as there is no malintent, I think we create, I was able to inadvertently create an environment where people felt comfortable to say, hey, you know what, I messed up. I forgot to send the report. I forgot to do proper testing before the project was deployed. This is where we screwed up, but this is how we will avoid it going forward. What I realized was that I had this immense amount of power or influence where if I was to be the first one to say, I messed up, I screwed up, I made a mistake. It all of a sudden opened up the permission and gave everyone else the permission to also come and say, you know what, I messed up. If my CEO can mess up, then I can mess up. And that's how we started to see our projects become more uh, you know, on time, we got issues reported, our customers started to feel like we were able to come proactively with problems to them versus hiding it till the end. And um, that's what I saw was a, a big turning point was when I was able to be vulnerable, then the rest of the team took that as, okay, I have permission to also make mistakes. And, and we're still working on it, right? We're trying to work that way. Like I'm still working on it personally as we work our way down the leadership because if you kind of compare it to like just an accountable culture, we, we got better at reporting mistakes, but we can still get better reporting near misses and learnings and things like that along the way. And that you can't do it alone, you know, as Muhammad as the person, like we're working. Actually, that leads me to a question for you, Dr. Porcel. Like how are, how are you kind of trying to spread, I hear a lot of good things coming from, I'm really, really great to hear that there's someone at the top of the leadership chain that has this mindset. But from what I've seen, you know, it doesn't always just automatically just transfer downward or outward um, to others. How, how are you kind of actively spreading this culture, you know, through your leadership? It, <laughs> well, that's, that's the idea that you gave me actually uh, for my next meeting. Uh, but you know, and honestly, um, it's you know, for for lack of a better word, is the uh, during the meeting is showing the humility uh, that, it, and it's really interesting because I, I want to be careful with what I'm about to say. Uh, I don't want to come across as like ambivalence. Um, you know. I know I'm the CEO uh, of, of this system, but when I enter a meeting, uh, I, I, don't, I don't want to be, um, how can I say this? I was gonna say, I, I don't want to be seen as a CEO. It's not that, yes, I do wanna be seen as a CEO, but the, the freedom that I want to create in the meetings, uh, that's really important uh, for, for people to, to what I don't want to happen and, uh, and, and it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a journey. Uh, it's it's going to take a while. Uh, when my people say things, 
it, it can't be like every time they say something, they stop and look at me. Uh, yeah. it, it's, it's, it's way more than just me. This is not about me. Uh, and, and I think that message is really important. And, and I keep trying to emphasize that, that, that this is not about Dr. Porsa. This is not about the COO or the CMO or whatever. This is about Harris Health System. This is about our patients at the end of the day. And, and we are all, we all have a part to play. Uh, we all have a part of the answer. None of us have to hold, have whole answer. Uh, we, we all have to be a part of it. And I think that's what I'm trying to answer your question, Jeff. This is what I'm trying to instill uh, in, in our leadership group that it's going to take all of us. And it's interesting. Uh, it, 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 it keeps happening, right? You know, it's just like, you know, I observe one leader acting a little uh, out of alignment. It's just like, you know, you, you just have to bring that leader and, you know, bring it to his or her attention that, you know what, when you did this, this is how it could have been interpreted. And, you know, nine out of 10 times, they really were not aware. Uh, and, and, and they can, they can self-correct and, you know, you, you see the result and it's very obviously very fulfilling. Uh, I, I want to be the CEO where others can tell me, Dr. Porsa, what you said could have been misconstrued for whatever. We're not there yet, but we're working on that. Awesome. Awesome. I love it. Thank you for sharing. So sure. what would you like uh, Dr. Porsa's legacy to be? With Harris Health. This is your first time as a CEO, um, you know, CEO of a hospital system. Um, and, you know, I, I've read uh, articles and data that the average tenure of a CEO is less than four years at a hospital system. And so, what is important to you for, for your legacy as a CEO of Harris Health or any future health system that you might work at? Yeah, uh, and thank you for asking that question. You know, actually, I, I uh, once in a while I, I write a little communication to to all my system. And you know, I have I have re recurring communications about the business of hair cell system. You know, and those go out once a week almost. But every couple of months, I uh, I send a personal statement. Uh, to the Harris Health uh, employees across the system. And really there is no, there's no timing. It's not like every couple of months I'll send one. Sometimes in one month I'll send two and sometimes in three months I don't send any. Uh, and I think it, it, it's on purpose. You know, I really only do it when I'm moved to do it, something happens and I feel the need to express it to the rest of the system. And so the question that you're asking was actually asked of me. Uh, you know, I think I said it at the beginning of this conversation that every every other Monday, I speak at our new employee orientation, and you know, at the end of my talk with them, I just open it up to questions, and they ask questions, and I answer them to the best of my ability. And it's usually about the business of healthcare. Uh, but one time, one of the new employees asked me. Dr. Porso, what do you want your legacy to be? And I honestly did not have a good answer. I did not. I, I kind of gave the uh, textbook uh, response, you know, I want to be the CEO who helped Harris Health achieve its mission or 
I don't know, some, some uh, uh, not very inspiring response uh, to that question. Uh, but, you know, almost a week later, uh, over the weekend when I was visiting one of the hospitals, one of the uh, nursing staff at one of the units came and, you know, gave me a hug and said, Dr. Porsa, I love it that you love us, that you show us that you love us. And again, a light bulb moment. That's what I want my legacy to be. I, I want to be the CEO who loved his employees and was not afraid of showing that he loved his employees. Uh, ever since then, uh, and it's really interesting, this almost like I got a, uh, a permission slip to start telling people that I love them. Uh, including this last Friday, I was at the uh, pharmacy graduation program. And I told our senior vice president of pharmacy operations, his name is Michael Nadi, Dr. Nadi. I, I just said it, you know, at the end of my speech, I said, I love you, Michael. Mm -hmm. You know, there was, there was no reason for it, but I just felt like I had to say it because I was so proud of the program that he had put together. So yeah, so that's what I want my legacy to be, the CEO love his employees i was not afraid to show it wow love it amazing <laughs> yeah awesome um so dr person that is unheard of of you know ceos using that type of language at a workplace and so how, did you hesitate how did you feel initially <laughs> and how are you feeling now like <laughs> I, I was, your I was there? Yeah, no, no, I was absolutely hesitant, um, you know, because you're right, you know, it, you know, it's, it's not, it's not that everyday recurrence and it's not like I had seen other CEO who did it. Uh, I love my previous CEO uh, in Dallas, great guy. I think he comes the closest to a saint that ever was, uh, but that was not, that was not part of our uh, vocabulary. That was not part of our everyday thing about going around and, you know, telling folks that we love them. Uh, so yes, I was very hesitant about it. Um, but, you know, a couple of things happened. One, it was that reaction from, from the employee. And I think the other thing was that, uh, uh, it's, it's one of those things, right? It's not like you wake up and all of a sudden you feel comfortable telling people that you love them, right? It's you, you built, you built to that moment. And I think what had happened previous to this statement was another statement that I had sent out. Uh, you know, it was at the, uh, uh, it, it was after the, or maybe during the uh, the presidential election and you know the hostility toward the uh, uh, Asian communities uh, uh, was was escalating. And it just again one of those moments that I just had I felt like I needed to say something. Uh, as a CEO of the Harris Health System. And I remember I wrote the statement talking about different things and there was a sentence in there uh, where I said, you know, I, I always just write freehand and then I'll start you know, going over it and think through it. I wrote it and this, the sentence that I wrote was that I am ashamed to say that I am part of the problem. I was talking about, you know, systemic racism and uh, biases and all of that. That's what I wrote. And when I finished, I went back and read it. I said, ooh, ashamed. Do I really want to say I am ashamed? Maybe, and I changed it. I said, 
uh, hate to think that I'm part of the problem or uh, I, I really like to be part of the solution. I, I don't know how many times I changed it. You know, the whole thing took me like 30 minutes to write. I spent two weeks agonizing over that one sentence. Yeah. Uh, but, it, you know, it finally occurred to me that if that is how I felt, to say it otherwise would be so dishonest and it would be the opposite of the message that I was trying to send. So I sent it exactly the way it was. And the reaction was extremely positive. As you can imagine, you know, when people see statements like that, they know that you know, you're, not, you're not faking it. Like no, nobody, nobody's gonna fake uh, being ashamed publicly. Mm. Uh, so yeah, it, 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 it takes several uh, incidents uh, to, to get you to a point where you really feel empowered by the reaction that you receive uh, that is not only okay, it, it's actually well-received uh, that, you know, that's, that's, what, that's what they want. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, why not? Why not? You know, we, we keep talking about we keep talking about culture and we're talking about leadership and we talk about how, uh, you know, true leaders, quote unquote, true leaders lead not by power or title, but lead by influence, right? Mm -hmm. What is more influential than love? There is nothing else. I mean, it's just like, what a wonderful way to lead uh, by loving. Uh, those that are trying to, to lead. And if you're fortunate enough uh, to have the capacity uh, to show that uh, to the folks that you're trying to lead, what a great influencer. Wow. And what a wonderful way to close our show out. That was amazing. Thank you. You know, Dr. Porson, it's been, it's been really inspirational talking to you today. I, I, I can't thank you enough because um, we obviously are, th these types of messages and these things that we're always breaking them apart, strategizing around them, trying to pick them apart. But it's not, it's not often enough that we get to talk to it at a practical level and apply it to the real world with real situations, real people. And you coming here and sharing with us, you know, very honestly and vulnerably, really appreciate it because we're, we're hearing the realities of the struggles and the mindsets that you have. And it took a lot for you to share that. And I want to acknowledge that. And thank you for joining us here today to do that. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Yes. Thank you, Dr. Yeah. Bursa. I, I got goosebumps for the end as you were sharing your story. It was really inspiring. Yep, absolutely. And we will, uh, we will talk to you hopefully soon and hopefully have more opportunities to hear how your story goes. And good luck with your, your legacy that I know you're on the right track to leave. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate it. Here at Love as a Business Strategy, we are posting new episodes every Wednesday, and you can read more about our story and our mission to bring humanity back to the workplace by checking out our book on Amazon or any book retailer. And you can also visit loveasabusinessstrategy.com for more information. If you like what you heard today, please do leave us a review, subscribe on Apple and Spotify, all that good stuff, and be sure to always share the love. See you all next week.